0: No, we made a little film called Brazil. And it's yeah. an, it, this is what kind of gets under the skin occasionally. You make a film and uh, it's released around the world except for America because a different company has it in America. You get yeah. Robert De Niro to play in it, Jonathan Price not playing a Eurasian this time mm-hmm. in the film. And, uh, and you, get, you do a film that's accepted around the world as a good film. You then take it to Hollywood. To a studio which paid a little bit of money to get it, and they decide they want a really a different film. And I said, Well, wait a minute, why do you want to change the story? Why do you want to change the ending? Why? Do you, don't, because because if you do, more people will like it, is what they say. Well, that's very nice, but this is a story we agreed to tell, we're storytellers. Mm-hmm. And um, they tried to change it, and I had to then do things like take out full page ads in Variety saying, Dear Sid Scheinberg, when are you going to release my film Brazil, signed Terry Gilliam, which is a very bizarre thing to do, because Variety is it pages and pages of zeros and dollar signs and money, money, money. And in mm-hmm. the midst of that, to see this rather human plaintive plea is a real shocker. Yeah. A, and I never worked again in the town, I think, after that. They were right. They said, you can't fight City Hall, you'll never work again. Mm-hmm. And um, then I made Bunchaus, and then I made Fisher King. It's very interesting the, They really do believe, people in Hollywood are living in fear the whole time, and they believe you can't take on the authorities. You can't actually try to protect what it is you do without paying some terrible price. And I am almost living proof that uh, that theory is not totally correct.
1: Hey, film fans, welcome to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast that we go back and revisit some movies that bombed in the theaters or the critics just didn't really take a liking to. I'm your host, Troy, and with me, as always, is Mr. Brad Anderson. How are you on this Memorial Day, Brad?
2: I'm doing great. I have a receipt for your uh, husband and a receipt
1: for my receipt. Oh, perfect. Because, you know, everybody needs a little bit of paperwork.
2: Yes, it's necessary. Uh, we love
1: paperwork. So Brad, uh, speaking of bombs, what, what are we going to discuss tonight?
2: For episode 51, we are doing 1985's uh, Terry Gilliam's uh, directed Brazil, um, the black comedy dystopian science fiction film. Also maybe referred to as 1984 and a half. So we'll get to that. So
1: Oh, yeah. Lots of lots of awesome film titles. So I, I actually thought it'd be interesting. The last episode we did, which was Big Trouble in Little China, episode 50, um, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, as I know you do as well. And there's always a segment where a lot of the podcast hosts talk about what they watched in between the last episode they did versus the episode they're doing today. So... I thought it would be fun just to give everybody a little bit of a taste of what we watch outside of the movie that we're talking about that week. So I I know I'm springing this on you last minute and I'm, I'm not making this a normal segment or anything of that nature. But I, I I did think it would be kind of fun to level set and say, okay, when Brad and Troy aren't sitting around talking about Brazil or talking about Big Trouble and Little China, what did they happen to squeeze in during the week? So, Brad, do you have a list or can you remember off the top of your head the movies that you ended up watching outside of Brazil for this week?
2: Yeah. I, I watched The Army of the Dead on Netflix. Okay. Which I find atrocious. And I see they're making another one. And I saw that. It was maybe Netflix, like highest viewed original film, which not a fan, not a fan. I think it's terrible.
1: Are you Uh, generally a fan of
2: Zack Snyder? um, I'm starting to think I'm not. Um, (laughs) I liked Watchmen a lot and I like his remake of Dawn of the Dead. And outside of that, I don't think I like much. To me, he's almost Michael Bay level on like writing and editing and character development, it's just all a mess to me. And army of the dead is literally like the culmination of all that put together. So I was a little bit disappointed because I thought the trailer looked really good and it got my attention. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm on board with that. But I think that's Zack Snyder's thing. I think he can direct a trailer really well, or his films are, can be adapted to a two or three minute trailer very right. well. Cause there's about that much interesting stuff in them. And af- outside of that, it's nothing. So um, I, I, I you guys last night. Uh, my father-in-law's in town and he and I always watch something in our theater when he comes. And last night I was like, Hey, let's watch den of thieves, which is <laughs> essentially the our buddy Charlie coined this phrase, and I, I'm going to steal it from him. The the white trash heat movie. Um, that is
1: pretty darn accurate. I mean, if you, yeah. if you were to put something on a box cover, I think that would be it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is somebody who watched heat and thought, I could do that. Um, it's way less good. Way less good. It's not as good as heat, but I find it really fun, and it's got its moments, and I think... It was not critically uh, viewed very well, so maybe in a few years we'll get to it on this podcast.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, that that Um, might be low on the list.
2: Yeah, and then finally, for some reason, I woke up super early this morning. Everyone, you know, we're on Memorial Day weekends. Um, Everyone went to bed really late last night Mm -hmm. and slept in, which is very rare around my house because I have a one and a four-year-old. They like to get up when the sun comes up, but they all slept in. But for some reason, I got up early and I was just kind of looking through uh, movies I had just so I could lay on the couch and watch. So I watched Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade this morning for no apparent reason, which I kind of think is a I mean, maybe it's the desert stuff and all that. But I kind of think it's like the perfect summer film, which Memorial Day kind of kicks off because, you know, they're out in a desert and stuff. So. You know, it kind of fits. So those are the three movies I watched this week outside of Brazil. Wow. And how
1: many times did you watch Brazil? Just once? I mean, uh, just
2: once. And then I went back and, and, and did find the alternate uh, Scooby-Doo ending for the good guy ending. So,
1: Oh, okay. Uh, I, I was all over the place. I got to be honest. I, I had a little time. So I ended up watching Brazil almost two times. We'll talk about that when we talk about the film. I did watch half of the Happy, the Love Conquers All edit. Yeah, Love Conquers All, is, yeah, is what yeah. it's called, yep. So in between Big Trouble and that, I, I had some Blu-rays come in from overseas. So I'm like, hey, crack that box open. Ended up watching I Love Maria, which was a Choi Hark film from 88. I can't even begin to explain this thing. It's super bonkers. But, you know, just just think about Hong Kong 80s action trying to rip off RoboCop. Uh, and meld it with a with i don't know <laughs> that
2: sounds amazing though better
1: tomorrow i mean you know gangsters making their own robots uh, it it's super entertaining but i can't say I'm, it's a good film oh i'm 100% on board for that though i might have to bring that the next time we get together so we can watch it yes uh, i happen to watch now i get street credit back for this so when when you when you read a review about brazil you referenced I guess, a movie that was on my list of shame that I admitted to publicly, which was Dr. Strangelove. And you sent me a text saying, hey, it's coming out on 4K. And I told you, I was like, man, I think I already own it on 4K. And we went back and forth a little bit. And I, I pulled out the Columbia box set that they did. For Academy Award-winning films. Sure enough, yeah, which I had totally forgotten yeah, about. Doctor Strange was in there, so I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna watch this, so I, I can knock that off the list of shame. Watched Doctor Strange Love, plus a couple of documentaries that was on it. And and, and I got to say, I I felt like I had seen about seventy percent of the film already. Yeah, you knew it through osmosis, really, because yeah, I I had seen snippets. Uh, as an example, the the whole Coke machine. I, I remember that specifically and laughing pretty hard. But I, the film is brilliant. And now seeing everything together as one cohesive narrative, I had always thought of it as sort of a, a farcical type film, which, which is, you know, I, I guess heavy on the comedy, which it is. Yeah. I, I didn't realize how much of a thriller it was and that it was based on a, a book that was kind of written as a thriller. But I, it, that movie really surprised the heck out of me. And Hey, I, guess what? Yeah. That, Kub- that Kubrick guy. He's pretty pretty good. good. I got it. I I think uh, I think he made some good movies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know what? Then I so it was as good as you feel like it's up there, right? Like it's. Oh, absolutely. I I would love to watch it again. And I don't know. I I think the reason why I stayed away from it is because I thought I'd seen most of it. And like I said, when you see some of those segments out of context, you concentrate on the humor of it. But when it's all tied together and you get these other sequences, I, I again, I didn't realize that there's this underlying sort of thriller story countdown sort of going on for that 90 minutes uh, that I, I was engrossed. I, I really love that. So I, I got a feeling I'm going to be watching that again pretty soon because I've been hyping it up to Cameron and Angel, and now they're interested. So I told them when they watch it, I want to watch it again.
2: Yeah. So full disclosure, you told me you were going to watch that film, and I was like, oh. I uh, maybe I'll get around to watching uh, Gone with the Wind. Get that film of shame off my wall. Looked at the the Blu-ray. Looked at the runtime. Three hours and fifty three minutes. <laughs> so I kindly put the Blu-ray back on the shelf and quietly walked away. I was like, you know what? I ain't got four hours. No, no. Yeah, yeah
1: that's I, that's a uh, that's a long watch. Yeah. Even with intermission. Oh boy. I went on to – so I figured I, I got something artistic. I got something groundbreaking. I got to go the other direction. So, boy, did I. I pulled out 2002's Ballistic X Versus Sever with Antonio Banderas, oh. Lucy Liu, uh, Ray Park was in it. And I, I remember seeing this in the theater being so disappointed. But I got to tell you, uh, watching it again on DVD, I, I, I was <laughs> – I was sitting there watching it, just admiring some of the practical effects and stunt work that goes on. It's still not a good film.
2: Isn't that considered one of the worst movies of all time?
1: I I think so. I mean, it's got like a 3.7 on IMDb. It it didn't do well at all. I I mean, it is a bomb. I don't know if we're going to talk about it because I don't know if there's much to say, but it it just gives you an example of how I will (laughs) ping pong back and forth in terms of quality. Because after that, uh, Cameron and I watched uh, a, a film that I... It was on my radar. Technically, I think I had a release last year, but it just came out on Blu-ray. And it's a Korean film, Deliver Us From Evil, which is an absolutely fantastic movie. I can't recommend that movie enough. Um, if you like action, if you like thrillers, it's, uh, it's one of my favorites for this year. So Cameron and I love that. Um, I finally got to watch... Uh, I, th- I think it's pronounced V... Uh, V-I-Y or Vi. So it's okay. it's considered Russia, Russia's first horror film. Uh, and I, I think sh- it, sh- it might be on Shudder. I, I bought the Blu-ray like a while ago. It was a movie. I, I used to live in Bloomington, Indiana. And one of the things Bloomington had at midnight on Fridays was Mondo Baltimore. So they would just show like foreign horror films. And most of the time they weren't even subtitled. So that was the first time that I got to see like the original Ringu and uh, V was uh, shown without subtitles, I think. So I, I watched this film without any context, but it was really pretty dazzling, especially the last part of it. So I was super excited to get uh, the Blu-ray and I can't remember if it's Severn Films put out a nice Blu-ray edition of it, but finally cracked that thing open. Um, and it, it, hey, it, it's fantastic. It looks glorious on Blu-ray. But if, if you're into, I don't know, early foreign horror films and, and you want to see what Russia was putting out, I'd, I'd highly recommend it, especially the last portion of it. It's it's pretty creepy.
2: So you said it's Russia's first horror film?
1: That's what they put on, I would say, the, uh, the Blu-ray or when you kind of read about it. What's funny is the Blu-ray came with a couple of silent films of Russian horror films. So I, I think it was, I don't know if it's like the first Russian released internationally horror film it's had some notoriety it's been floating around out there for a while but finally caught up to it so
2: i guess i guess my question is is there something against in like R- russian theology or communism that's like against horror films that this would be like their first or is it just like an, a tale that's old and they're making into a movie so they're like oh it's their first horror film because it's uh based on something that happened
1: 500 years ago or something like that. Do you know? It's based on, I want to say, old folk tale.
2: Okay. So maybe that's why.
1: Here's the thing. And I haven't watched it yet. It's one of those that I didn't kind of shelve because there's actually, and I don't know how long it is, but there's supposed to be a special feature, a little documentary on the history of Russian, like horror science fiction film that's on there. So that is all the questions that you're asking. I had the same when I watched it, because usually when you hear about a country's first horror film, you're thinking, oh, something black and white, something very early. I mean, this shot in color color. Sorry. I I have problems with words, Um, but talking is hard talking is hard. And from a practical effects standpoint, It's visually impressive, like what they were able to do at that time period. And some of the makeup effects and the special effects they were doing were kind of cool for that time period. But that Blu-ray has so many special features to it that'll probably walk you through the history or why it's considered the first. I just didn't get that far. Okay. So um, it was a huge success
2: in Russia from what I'm seeing right now.
1: Yeah, it's super influential. And I I, want to say at some point, I think Shudder was showing it because I know a lot of times they will show the stuff that comes out on, uh, from Severn's website, et cetera. But, um, yeah, I, I can't recommend it enough, especially if you kind of want to go into the Wayback machine and, and, see what another country was doing, um, with their concept of horror. So that's cool. Yeah. Uh, then I think I, I finished it off with something that it wasn't my pick, but I was interested in seeing it just because I like one of the actors, but I'm not a big fan of the other, but I, I watched the King of Staten Island. I oh yeah I, I got to tell you Pete Davidson doesn't really do it for me so I wasn't really looking forward to it but I do really enjoy um, is it Bill Burr yes uh, and and this this movie surprised me I I really did enjoy it I
2: I 100 I, I agree I think it's got the appetite problem where it's way too long yes and it needs editing but I will 100 percent agree with you that I really like that movie a lot.
1: I was pleasantly surprised. It's 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 just a it's just a good film. I mean it's a good dramedy, yeah. I guess.
2: He was in another film.
1: Who, Pete Davidson?
2: Pete Davidson, like it's called like Adult Adolescent or something like that. It's on Hulu or one of the streaming services. It's also very good. I watched it after I watched The King of Saturn Island. So look for that. It's something adolescent. Um, yeah, I'm, like I'm, that I'm
1: being honest. If you had told me, Hey, go watch this Pete Davidson movie. I'd be like, no, absolutely. Yeah, not. Exactly. I don't care how much I like you, Brad. I'm not watching it. But after, after watching King of Staten Island, I'm like, okay, I'll, I, I think the guy can act. I'll go check it out. Yeah. But, so there you go, folks. That's, that's a little bit of what we will pick on our own. Which, as you can see, I mean, if you haven't guessed, in going back and looking at you know fifty plus episodes or fifty one episodes, and just seeing the type of movies that we kind of decided to talk about on this podcast, I mean, we're we're all over the place. We'll pick the stuff that is um, artistic, maybe pushing the boundaries a little bit, but we'll also go for the cheap laughs, the cheap action. Um, yeah, I mean, two episodes ago we did Hardwire, Livewire,
2: Livewire, yes,
1: Livewire, and yeah,
2: so. Yeah, and we kicked we things are. off
1: with Children of Men, and now yeah. Brazil, which it, it it it's kind of funny, Brad. I mean, this is another dystopian science fiction um, downer of a movie <laughs> that you've you've picked. What what's your history with this one?
2: So I was trying to think. Um, in two thousand three or four, I took a film studies class at UK and we were doing something and I was trying to remember what the assignment was, but I wrote about Brazil for this class um, because I was a huge 1984 fan and this kind of, the themes are not exactly the same. I mean, but there is that overarching sort of, I don't even want to, they're not, they are similar, but they're not, you know, like one's totalitarianism. This is more bureaucratic, um, there's no real big brother in this movie, but, but they are kind of similar in style. So anyway, um, I wrote about kind of a theory about, um, something that happens to a character in this movie. And I watched Brazil probably 12 or 15 times in a week trying to write this paper. And it's something that I, you know, am not a writer at heart, but something I really enjoyed doing. And I had not seen Brazil since then, but it's always been a film that I've always treasured and thought, this is one of my favorite movies. Like if you want me to tell you my favorite 50 to 75 films, this would be on that list. So it's always kind of played into my love of the genre, especially with Blade Runner, um, Akira, like all those science fiction dystopian if you tell me science fiction dystopian, I'm pretty much on board. Like those words together are, are some of my yeah yeah.
1: Okay. So that's that's where I am. So that's interesting. So you you, you watched it what seventeen years ago? About eighteen years yes. ago? Yes. Yes. And you haven't watched it since? I have not. Okay.
2: No, I have. I bought like literally every version of this film. I own. I. Countless versions of this movie. So, okay, I, uh, you know it's one of those where you just buy it. And I mean, I've seen it, but there are some versions I have not watched until this week.
1: Yeah, for for the longest time, I I actually thought it was one of Criterion's best releases that they did in terms of not just quality of film, but when you think about the special features and everything that they put within that particular release. And that film, and and I'm sure we'll talk about it in detail, had a very, I don't know, public history in terms of its release schedule in the U.S. with Gilliam kind of fighting with Universal Studios at the time in one particular person. And Criterion did a really good job of outlining everything that was going on with the making of Brazil, even to go so far as to release a version of Brazil that the studio wanted to accompany sort of Terry Gilliam's version his final cut. So it, it's been released on Blu-ray, uh, you know, for Criterion, it's been, Criterion put it on a fantastic Laserdisc set. The, yeah, it's
2: like five Laserdisc, right?
1: Yeah, there's a, you know, I still have my Criterion DVD set, which had a, um, it was funny how they labeled it. They labeled, you know, the films, usually they put a number to it. So this is collection 51, but they labeled this one 51.1, 51.2, and 51.3 so uh and, and the reason for that is because the first disc is Terry Gilliam's 142 minute cut the second one has all of the production notes and the history but it has a really good documentary which is uh, really about the battle over Brazil between Gilliam and Universal Studios and then disc three is the love Conquers all version which was the 94 minute cut 94 that this, minutes this yeah studio wanted to do but I, I which can't- was
2: syndicated for television
1: yeah. So that version is in a four, three aspect ratio. And and if you really want to track this down, you know, universal put out a Blu-ray of the actual U S edition, which was 132 minutes. 32 minutes. Yep. Yeah. So there's tons of versions out there and this I, is
2: like Blade Runner in a way.
1: Yeah, very much. Uh, and you know, I, I, I think it's one of those where if, if you go to film school <laughs> or if you listen to podcasts that I don't know, how you would say it, um, are more on the auteur side. They're probably going to do way more justice in going through the thematic elements, um, kind of dissecting the meaning of some of the social commentary, et cetera. I I think tonight we're just going to tackle it in terms of here's a little bit of history on what happened to the film, why it bombed, and then even talk about our reaction to it. Because I'm really curious, Brad, what your reaction is this viewing versus when you saw it 17, 18 years ago, and, and if that changed. So let's get into it, man. I mean, you, you usually go through the box office numbers. This one's this one's pretty interesting. And, and so when we talk about that, we'll also talk about like how it was received from the critics.
2: Yeah. So Brazil was released in the United States um, in December of 1985. It is reported that the budget is $15 million, Domestic gross is $9.9 million, so it did not make its budget back in the United States. Internationally, is kind of weird. Like I found that the only numbers I could find was internationally it made $5,000, which I was like, I don't think that's right because I thought in in like England and in Great Britain it did really well, but I couldn't find any exact numbers on that. Um, this is one of the highest films that we've ever reviewed on our show or discussed on our show. Um, is a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes with a 90% audience score. So very high. I will tell you some of the films that uh, was released along Brazil in 1985, because I've seen, I think maybe all of these, if, if not most of them. Okay. Uh, so we have, I don't know.
1: Have you heard of this movie called police story, Troy? It's a little film from Hong Kong. That, you know, it, it did quite well. It ended up, I think, affecting just about all of the American action films of the 80s. But yeah, I, yes. I think I've heard about it.
2: And it stars uh, Bruce Lee? No,
1: no, <laughs> no, no. That would be incorrect.
2: Yes. Jackie Chan. Yes. Kind of. God, I wish people could see your face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about the uh, Enemy Mine?
1: Oh, uh, int- very interesting. So Enemy yep. Mine came from 20th Century Fox. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and talk about this. That was the film that 20th Century Fox wanted Terry Gilliam to direct for them. And the deal was if he did Enemy Mine, then they would turn around and fund Brazil. And he said, nope, he only wants to do Brazil.
2: Yep. Uh, now, I think this is one of the only ones I might not have seen. Out of Africa.
1: Okay. Robert Redford?
2: Robert Redford, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and then we have Clue.
1: Ah, okay. That, we'll be talking Robert- about that at some point.
2: Yep. Runaway Train.
1: Excellent film. Jewel of the Nile. Pretty good film.
2: The color purple. Good film. One of my one of my favorite comedies of all time, Spies Like
1: Us. Uh, yeah, underrated film. I think yes. I think it was a hit back then, but I feel like everybody's forgot about it.
2: Yep. And uh Young Sherlock Holmes and then Burial Ground is the last film. Okay. So yeah, I, I think that's a good slate of films. Brazil, you know, stands out as that's an enemy mind, very heavy science fiction, um, along, you know, with Clue and comedies like Jewel of the Nile and Spies Like Us. So Yeah, so, it, it definitely stands out.
1: Yeah. So what are your thoughts on Terry Gilliam? I mean, he obviously he is associated with one of the the in my mind, funniest comedic troops out there, are Monty Python. He was the only Python that was not born in Britain. He became naturalized uh, British subject in '68. He he just formally, well, not just, but he renounced his American citizenship in in 2006. But I think a lot of people forget that Terry Gilliam uh, was working over in the U.S. Got hooked up with Eric Idle, John Cleese, all of them. You know, started working Monty Python. But he he's not. He
2: did a lot strong. of the. The animated stuff was kind of his specialty.
1: Yes. And if you think about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I think he he got a co-directing credit for that. He also did uh, Jabberwocky in 77. Um, he really came onto the scene in 1981 as a director for a little film called Time Bandits that was distributed by Embassy Pictures. What was significant about Time Bandits and why he became a hot item after that was it was a smaller budget, but it did big box office internationally. So yeah, it did
2: like eight times its budget.
1: Yeah, and that's why people like, you know, 20th Century Fox, Universal Studio, everybody was going after him with properties. And he really wanted to work on Brazil. And 20th Century Fox wanted him and said, hey, you know, work on work on Enemy Mine and we'll turn around and, and do your picture. He said no. And and eventually what happened is Universal Pictures and 20th Century Fox Kind of co-funded it uh, and split the distribution rights. But Time Time Bandits was in '81. Brazil was in '85. Adventures of Baron Munchausen was '88,
2: which is considered like his trilogy of imagination films.
1: Yep, and we'll we'll talk about that. And keep in mind, out of those three, Brazil and Baron Munchausen bombs box office mm-hmm. wise. I, I think they've come back and said that Brazil specifically. If you, if you count all channels of distribution, so home media, et cetera, it just finally broke even.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's $15 million, which in 85 was a lot of money. But you know, if you're kind of factoring that in now upon releases and all that stuff, I think, yes, it's it's finally made money. But again, we talk about this sometimes. Studios will not want to wait 36 years to start making money on a film. That's no, bad exactly. business. Yeah.
1: Uh, he does Fisher King, 12 Monkeys, Fear and Loathing, Las Vegas, Brothers Dream. I, I will
2: tell you that Fear, that uh, 12 Monkeys is one of my, again, uh, favorite science fiction films. Uh, you know, it if, fits if the bill of kind of dystopian
1: science fiction. So is huge. is Gilliam like a director the minute you know he's attached to a project you just seek out? Do you, Do you just chase him down?
2: Not really, because like, I don't like, I mean, I, I like his stuff, but. He's not a, a, a film, a director that, I don't know. He doesn't put out an Well, Fear and Loathing is another one I really like. And that Zero Theorem is another one I like. Maybe, yes. Yes, okay. maybe.
1: I, I will say maybe. Yeah, I was looking at his list. The only two films I haven't seen is The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus and The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, but I've seen everything else. And I, I will say I get excited when I hear his name come up in conversation. I mean, I love the documentary that they made about him – uh you know, doing the Don Quixote film that, you know, never really got made. I, I thought that was a great documentary, but yeah, I, I really enjoy him as a director. And, you know, I would, I would have to say, if you look at the eighties and nineties, he was, um, he made a lot of my favorite films from those, yeah, from those two decades.
2: And it's unfortunate. Like, I don't ever feel like people really appreciate his output because I am guilty of it too. Like 12 monkeys is one of my favorite films but I don't really associate Terry Gilliam as the reason why. Yeah. When, I, like it, it, like say if somebody like Scorsese was to direct that film, I'm like, Oh, that's a, you know, Scorsese did this amazing film, but I don't give Gilliam that sort of recognition for some reason. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's like the comedy background, like if that really hurts directors when they go and do something else, like it's not fair, but, I don't know if that's holding me back on my praise for him as a director. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but there's some sort of barrier that I can't seem to to get to break down when analyzing him as a director.
1: I The thing I've always appreciated about him, he he's 100% a true artist. And when we talk about the background of Brazil, I mean, he champions the fact that he's an artist more so than a businessman. Uh, he makes challenging films, I think, especially in the 80s and 90s. And, and I love that about him. I, I'm, I'm sad that he didn't win the accolades that I think he should have won. So Academy Award-wise, in 85, he got nominated for Best Original Screenplay for Brazil. And Golden Globes, he was nominated for Best Director for The Fisher King. I, I don't know if he's made a better film than some of the stuff in the 80s and 90s. Box office wise, I'm always surprised. I mean, Time Bandits earned eight times its original budget. Munchausen was a bomb. Brazil is a bomb. Uh, the Fisher King in 91 had a budget of 24 million, made 41 million. 12 Monkeys grossed more than 168 million. Yeah, that's I mean, a that was huge, huge hit for hit. For him. The Brothers Grimm, even though it had a mixed critical reception, grossed over 105 million worldwide. And um, even the imaginary of Dr. Parnassus, uh thirty million budget does sixty million. So, uh, according, you know, to Box Office Mojo, is, his movies make on average about twenty one million. Now, obviously, something like Twelve Monkeys like skews yeah. that, but he he makes some pretty profitable films overall. Brazil, I don't know. Is it? Do you think that's the best one he's done out of his filmography, or would you no, give that Twelve, to 12 Monkeys, Monkeys is
2: my favorite out okay. of his filmography.
1: Okay. Well, the screenplay was done by Terry Gilliam, Tom Stopper, Charles McCowan. Now, if, if you read some things about this, there's an uncredited Charles Alverson. Uh He was paid for his work, but was ultimately uncredited in the final film. Cinematography was done by Roger Pratt. Roger Pratt has worked on things like Batman, 1989, cinematography, The Fisher King in 91, 12 Monkeys in 95, Troy in 2004. He has a pretty good filmography. and, and You can
2: I, really connect 1980, you can really, 1985, to. To Brazil, to Batman. There's a lot of
1: oh, yes, absolutely
2: shadows and like shots. There's a a pull away shot that like literally I remember in Batman being the exact opposite, being yes. more of like a snap zoom. But yeah, you can connect those dots so easy.
1: And and I feel like I'm not doing justice unless I go through somebody who worked on one of the films we talk about and tie it back to Jackie Chan. So of course, Roger Pratt was cinematographer on 2010's The Karate Kid. There you go. Um, we'll talk about the production design. That was Norman Garwood art direction by John Beard, Keith Payne. I, I bring those names up because when we talk about this film and we talk about a reaction to it, we, we will get into detail about the aesthetics. Yeah. Visually. You can't talk about this film without talking about visually. Yeah. And and we're going to be talking about Norman, John and Keith here, but let's talk about the cast. So we've got Jonathan price as Sam Lowry. This, this film is all about Sam Lowry. Jonathan price is one of those actors that I think you end up recognizing and he's been in so many different films and TV about this time period. He was doing something wicked this way came in 83 did Brazil in 85 haunted honeymoon in 86 Jumpin' Jack flash in 86. So he was doing a lot of character actors or supporting roles. And again, if you look at his selection about this time period, he's, he's probably just about in every genre.
2: He's a very much that guy.
1: Yeah. He, he just popped he up. The sp- he
2: was the high Sparrow in Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah.
1: Uh, now the other person that gets thrown around with Brazil is of course Bobby De Niro himself as Harry Tuttle. Uh, man, I always forget about the stuff that De Niro was doing in the eighties. If you look at that list, he, he kicks off the decade with Raging Bull in 1980, King of Comedy in 82, Once Upon a Time in China in 84, does Brazil, Follows that up with The Mission in 86, Angel Heart in 87, The Untouchables in 87, and Midnight Run in 88. I, he yeah. did a lot of different genres. Well,
2: then he kicks off the 90s with The Goodfellas. Oh, so yeah. it's like, that, that <laughs> run crazy. is unbelievable.
1: Are, are you familiar with Catherine Hellman? She plays um, Sam's mother, Mrs. Uh, Ida Lowry. Yes,
2: yeah, she was in, uh, what TV show was that?
1: Well, she was, a, she was in two TV shows I remember. One, I don't know if you're familiar with, but- there was a show when I was growing up, and I, I really didn't understand it when I saw it, but I, I recognized Billy Crystal from it, but it was Soap that ran from 1977 oh, to 1981. Yeah. She played the character Jessica Tate, and I, I think a lot of people know her from a longer-running Which series, boss. Who's the Boss, as yes. Mona Robinson from 84 to 92. Uh, th- she's, I think she's a great actress, But and if you go back to your filmography, I'm amazed at how many things she's in, but I always come back to those two TV shows uh you get wasn't she the mother in overboard as well oh
2: what's she? she Goldie
1: Hawn? oh yeah mother? I think so yeah. yeah 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 uh Ian Holm as Mr Kurtzman so Ian Holm everybody's gonna know him as Bilbo Baggins Bilbo Baggins the, the older Bilbo Baggins from Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit I I <laughs> also in The Fifth Element Fifth Element that's right we get Bob Hoskins as Spore uh, at this time he was um well I mean when you what films do you think of Bob Hoskins
2: Super Mario Brothers. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit?
1: Yeah, those are the two that come to mind. Look. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michael Palin, one is of he, the... Is
2: he auditioning for Super Mario Brothers in this movie? Him and the, Bob the guys. Hoskins, I think so. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, he, he got the part, obviously, because Mario yeah. Brothers was, what, 93? So... Yeah. I'm, yeah. Sure, I'm sure he came in with Brazil and said, I've, I've already done this. Just put me in yeah. it. Michael Palin uh, from Monty Python Troop. I, the movie... I think Michael Palin's funniest film, *A Fish Called Wanda*, from '88, as Ken. <laughs> well, we'll t- we'll talk about his performance in Brazil, but I think of Michael Palin not just from *Monty Python*, but specifically that film with John Cleese, Jamie Lee Curtis, comedy comedy gold. Yes. Well, let's let's talk about some facts about this film before we get into thoughts. So, 1999, British Film Institute voted Brazil the 54th greatest British film of all time. In 2017, a poll of 150 actors. Now, when I see 150 whatever, I know that's a small sample size. But let's say you've got 150 of the best actors, directors, writers, and producers, and critics for Time Out magazine said that Brazil was ranked as the 24th best British film ever. You already talked about this. Gilliam refers to this film as the second in a trilogy of imagination films. So it starts with Time Bandits. Then there's Brazil then there's Baron Munchausen. So the trilogy imagination, do you you know the concept behind this? I don't. Okay. All are about the craziness or awkward ordered society and the desire to escape it from whatever means possible. So what Gilliam was trying to do is saying, okay, all three movies focus on like the individual struggle and how we attempt to free ourselves from what's going on in reality through imagination. So Time Bandits is done and told through the eyes of a child. Brazil is through the eyes of a man in his 30s. And Munchausen is through the eyes of an elderly man. So if you were to watch all three films, they all have this constant theme of trying to escape sort of the craziness of reality through imagination. You talked about this already. The film was inspired by George Orwell's 1984, which Gilliam had admitted he never read.
2: Never read. Yeah. So
1: he, he knew about the story, probably read the cliff notes and said, I'm going to make a movie about that. We talked about 20th Century Fox wanting Enemy Mine uh, or wanting him to direct Enemy Mine. He says, no, I'm going to do Brazil. And you mentioned one title already that was thrown around as they were making this film. So here's some other titles they considered for it. Uh, we talked about 1984 and a half. That was one of the titles. Another title was The Ministry. Another title was the Ministry of Torture. How I Learned to Live with the System. So far, was it so? There's your Doctor Strangelove, yeah. Uh, which non. I
2: like that title a lot.
1: Yeah, and so that's why the bourgeoisie sucks. That was another title. Uh, let's let's talk about the battle for Final Cut. So this is where it gets interesting. And I I can't. If you guys want to know anything about the behind the scenes of this film, and it's the first time coming to it really go, go grab that criterion release. I mean, it's on Blu-ray. Uh, Barnes and Nobles has a sale. What twice a year, you can get it for 20 yes. bucks. Yep. It, it's fantastic, but we'll, we'll just give you the cliff notes. So the, the film was produced by a guy named Arnon Milken and his company, embassy international pictures. Gilliam's original cut of the film is 142 minutes long and ends on a very dark note. This version was released in Europe and internationally by 20th Century Fox without issue. So as soon as he's done with the film, he says, here's my movie. And Fox says, great, they have international distribution rights and they go ahead and release it as is. And it's it does pretty good internationally. Universal, because they ponied up some money, get North American distribution rights. Yep. Now the Universal executives saw this 142 minute cut and they tested it and they said, okay, the, the ending tested poorly and universal chairman, Sid Sheinberg, so you're gonna hear this name a lot, mm-hmm. insisted on a dramatic re-edit of the film to give it a happy ending and suggested testing both versions to see which scored higher. He thought there was a really good movie here. He was impressed with the visuals. He really liked it, but he didn't think American audiences were gonna go for this, right? So he felt he owed a film to entertain the audience or meet their expectations. And Gilliam's cut was too long too confusing for the average moviegoer and too downbeat for the American audience. Okay. And so what happens is at one point, there are two editing teams working on the film, one without Gilliam's knowledge, and then what Gilliam was doing for his final cut. So the, the one that the studio made under Sid Sheinberg's direction um, was more consumer friendly and it, and it had that love conquer all ending. Here's, here's the other thing. What Universal was trying to do is they, they wrote a contract and they told Gilliam he could have final cut, meaning they would not touch his film and they couldn't do it by contract if the film came in at two hours and five minutes. So if Gilliam delivered a two hour and five minute cut, the studio would have to release it, even with a downer ending, because Gilliam would have met his contractual obligation. Um, and for Universal, it really came down to they wanted that two hours and five minutes because it was about how many showings could they get in a day during a theatrical run, and they were more concerned for this type of film: can they get two showings in an evening? So when you get to about the two and a half hour mark, that makes it very difficult, and a lot of times theaters will just at that time period would just show it one time. At two you're, hours, you're
2: showing it at seven thirty or eight. Yes, and not like at five thirty and nine or whatever.
1: Yeah so that's what they were going for and so they were fighting with gilliam and keep in mind that fox goes ahead and releases it internationally universal says nope we need gilliam to cut this thing down gilliam wouldn't do it so sid steps in says all right let's do this one and after this big lengthy delay and back and forth gilliam ends up taking a full page ad in a trade magazine variety urging Sheinberg to release Brazil in its intended version. Sheinberg speaks publicly of his dispute with Gilliam in interviews and ran his own advertisement in daily variety offering to sell the film. Um, if you, if you go back, you can find this stuff. I mean, Gilliam and Robert De Niro, it's very public. Yeah. Gets on good morning America with a picture of Sid Sheinberg and says, we have a problem with this guy. I mean, he, he takes this thing. Gilliam, gets super personal with his attacks towards Sid Sheinberg and they're just, they're having it all out in public. Right. And then Gilliam takes it a step further because the contract is Gilliam can't show his film in North America at all because it's owned by universal and they're trying to get it out there within a version that they can get as many viewings as possible. But Gilliam decides he's going to conduct a bunch of private screenings of Brazil for film schools and local critics there, there was a clause that said he could show a segment of the film. So he defined a segment of the film as the segment is the start to the finish of the film. And so he was going around showing it in film schools and, and showing it you know, for critics in L.A. Um, and on the same night that Universal's award contender, you talked about this out of Africa, premiered in New York, Brazil was awarded the Los Angeles Film Critics Association Award for Best Picture, best screenplay, and best director. Even though it hadn't been released in the U.S. yet, because they had a private screening, critics fell in love with it, and they said, well, this is the best picture out there. And this prompted Universal to finally agree to work with Gilliam and release a 132-minute version. And so that's that's what got shown in 1985. And again, you won't find that version in the Criterion set. If you want to see the theatrical version, you have to go and buy Universal's Blu-ray, it does have the 132-minute version, but it's it's bare bones. There's nothing on it. And I don't know about you, Brad. This is one of those stories that as it was coming out, I think it was the first time I kind of learned about the relationship between filmmaker and studio because it was so public.
2: Yeah, I, you know growing up, I just thought a director made a movie and the studio put it out and they let the director kind of do whatever they wanted. And this was like this. And of course, like Blade Runner are are those films that you go back and there was like a literal battle for what film the audience was going to see. And it was very important to the director that their piece of art be seen the way they wanted it. And the studio, which is in business for money to pull against that because they felt that audiences weren't going to be attracted to a, a a movie that's almost two and a half hours long. That is difficult to kind of get through because there's a lot of stuff going on and it ends on a down note. So if I go and see that on a Friday night and I come back and tell you, Oh, that movie Brazil is weird and it's sad. Don't go see it. Word of mouth in 1985 is very important, and uh, that's what they were trying to avoid. And this, the, again, this is one of the first times for me, kind of understanding that a film goes through a lot of bureaucratic red tape. Yes, uh, to be released, which is obviously for this movie very ironic.
1: Yeah, it, I, I mean, this is where art and commerce come together, and it's it's just a miracle that any movie gets made to begin with. But if you, if you think about it from the studio's perspective, they saw Time Bandits, they saw a little investment make eight times its money back from the commerce side. And they said, wow, this is a really talented director. So both Fox and Universal put up money for it. Fox is okay with that runtime because they look at that and they say, hey, this is going to play great for an international market. And of course, it does well internationally. Universal looks at this and says, this is not Time Bandits and it's too long and of course Sid Scheinberg thinks that okay you know this is a good film but if we do some changes to it we think we can have a a good marketable piece of entertainment for everybody to go to and of course Gillian is not backing down from this thing so uh, at the end of the day both studios were right for 20th century fox it played very well internationally and that 132-minute version that went out there, it, it bombed in the U.S. I mean, nobody wanted to see this thing.
2: Does that mean international markets are smarter than our domestic
1: market? I, I don't know if smarter. I I don't know if I would say smarter. I, I would say it has more to do with timing, what's going on in that country. I mean, yeah. think about it. There are tons of films that do very well over here. They bomb internationally. Uh, and, and I think it's, you know, it's whatever that cultural zeitgeist is going on and yeah. you tap into it, et cetera. But let's, let's get into our thoughts on the film because I'm, I'm really curious. You revisit this thing. You, you write a whole, I don't know, 20 page paper on it. I don't know how long your paper was. I think it was like 10. Okay. 10. I, I, might I wouldn't be.
2: write no 20 page. Paper. Exaggerated. Okay.
1: So you do a 10 page paper. It's one of your, you know, favorite films of all time. You saw it almost two decades ago you sit down and revisit it you're gonna you're gonna talk about it for a podcast what's what's your initial reaction on it well
2: the visuals still hold up um i think this is a striking film and you can see you know some a lot of 1940s neo-noir in this thing mixed with like uh, metropolis like in you know it's got a striking visual style that i think will be timeless you can in 20 years if i go back and watch this again those visuals are going to hold up and it's going to be striking again. Um, This time when I was watching it, you know, being a little bit more critical, I I did find it a little slow at times. Uh, The pacing I think is very intentional, but it's intentionally sort of slow and sort of, you kind of have to wade through a lot of stuff kind of like they do in this movie. Um, You know, it's always kind of a weird sort of, way to do a movie you're, you're making a movie about red tape and paperwork and you kind of want the audience to feel that as they watch the movie. So you make the movie kind of slow um, on purpose, which I, I I applaud you doing that because it definitely makes you feel that in the film. But, you know, to enjoy a movie like this, it, it does take a little bit of work. Um, And there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of dark comedy, which I I find really spot on. Um, And uh, there's a lot of striking visuals like that baby mask that Jack wears at the end is haunting.
1: Yeah. It it Um, shows up on the, what they call the forces of nature.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Those creatures. Um, And there's also some other striking scenes. They're driving the truck. And there's just billboards on the side of the road. They're all happy and stuff. But when the camera pulls up, it's all like, you know, desert wasteland. It's like they're driving on the Fury Road or whatever. I I do like all the performances. I do like um, uh, Jonathan Price quite a bit. You know, at this time, the thing that stood out to me is how white this movie is. Like, there's no people of color in this movie. And, And obviously, I think that's for a reason. But, you know, again, it's it's very striking now to see. And, um, you know, and then, and then you just have this weird, all of a sudden, like, De Niro character that is, you know, I, I kept forgetting that he kind of comes back at the end. So you just think, oh, that's a weird, like, De Niro cameo in this movie. But it's obviously more than a cameo at the end. But, you know, I, I, I still enjoy this movie quite a bit. I don't think that... 38 year old Brad likes it as much as 20 year old Brad, but I mean, that's okay. I I just really felt the runtime this time to the point where it was a little bit where I just wanted to get to the end because I liked the last 20 minutes of this movie way more than the first two hours. So.
1: Yeah. I, (sighs) So here, here's my story. I, I think it's funny, this film, right at the beginning, references the Marx Brothers and Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Because uh, that, that's kind of going on in the first, I don't know, five or ten minutes. This movie feels like a merge of those two properties, except changing the redemptive story arc of A Christmas Carol into a character's Descendant to Madness. I mean, if somebody were to ask me, hey, what's what's watching Brazil like? I would say it's like taking the Marx Brothers, you know, uh, duck soup and merging it with a Christmas carol. And that's kind of the feel you get watching this thing. So the first time I watched it in the afternoon, because, you know, we have a three-day weekend, I started dozing in and out. I was super tired. It, it wasn't because of the film, but I'm going in and out of this film. And I don't know <laughs> if you're taking, you know, you, you ever watch a film and you all of a sudden your eyes close for five or 10 minutes and then they wake up. But I've seen this thing. I don't know how many times uh, I've seen it multiple times in the last couple of decades. So more times than you have in that time period. But every time I would open my eyes, I was disoriented and I'd have to catch up real quick because I felt like I was having some comedic nightmare. So especially if I dozed off during sam lowry in the real world and then would wake up when he's having a fantasy especially with the forces of nature the big samurai i got freaked out a little bit i'm like what what the heck what what is on (laughs) so it took me a minute i'm like oh yeah we're at this part of the film and then there were a couple times especially i I remember dozing off waking up and he's in this floor and it's empty and all of a sudden the background you see a bunch of people kind of walking just all chaotically. And there's some guy giving orders, et cetera. And and it's a very funny bit where all of a sudden he gets swooped up in it. And I got this, Oh my God, I'm back at work vibe. Like I was dreaming. I was back at work and having a nightmare. It's supposed to be my day off. So it was, it was weird. And I, I was appreciative of having that experience of dozing in and out of it. And then the next day I'm like, okay, I'm well rested. I got my coffee. I went back and watched it through and through and and I got to say, the older I get, the more this film really depresses me big time. So the comedy becomes more and more overshadowed by the cruel and accurate truce of the world, especially from the political and corporate satire.
2: The lack of empathy is one of the things.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think everybody compares Brazil to 1984 and I've seen Terry Gilliam say in some interviews, he wasn't making an Orwellian dystopic future film. He was making a film describing what it was like to be in society now. So at that time, 1985, and I think he nails it. So before we talk about the depressing stuff, I I do want to focus on the comedy because like you said, it, it, it is a very funny film, but it is very dark in some places. You're still laughing, but you're laughing going, oh my gosh, that's so accurate, <laughs> but it's demented. Um, but, but I'll the say this. For
2: your, the receipt It gets me every time yeah.
1: when they take the husband. Absolutely. I, I mean, the comedy is a mix between some great physical bits, like with his toast that he's trying to get after the coffee he spills on it, to even some of the slapstick stuff that happens with the uh, two central service employees um, with all the pipes and stuff that you know, uh, he, they end up tearing out of his apartment. But there, there's great physical bits with interesting sight gags and probably the best satirical dialogue in film that I've, I've watched in a long time. But um, I, some of the lines, you talk about this one, this is your receipt for your husband and this is my receipt for your receipt. I love that. I mean, th- this is just sort of in the first 10 minutes. They're, they're doing a TV interview and they're talking about the bombings and the tv interview says how do you account for the fact that bombing campaign has been going on for 13 years and mr helpman says i don't know beginner's luck so <laughs> <laughs> um when I, they
2: drop the hole when they're trying to plug the hole where the oh uh, my God. guys come through
1: yes he says bloody typical they've gone back to metric without telling us <laughs> so um and, and this is my fate what i love about this film is when you talk about working in corporate America or any kind of bureaucracy, there's this whole dialogue where they're defending. And I think it's Ian home or it might be Eric Idle. I can't, I, I think it might be Eric Idle who goes through this quote and says, information transit got the wrong man. I got the right man. The wrong one was delivered to me as the right man. I accepted him on good faith as the right man. Was I wrong? That's the kind of dialogue you're getting and you have to pay attention to it because it's super funny
2: but that is that is corporate america passing the buck on to somebody else it's never anyone's fault it's always someone else's fault trust me
1: yeah and and there's little snippets of dialogue that happen in the background when sam is is kind of moving through a busy place and it's the holiday season there's a kid on santa's lap and santa claus says you know what would you like for christmas little girl and she says my own credit card so <laughs> there's there's stuff going on in the background and i i I think one of the funniest bits because every time I see it, it makes me laugh is they're at a dinner party and Mr. Helpman calls Jack Jacqueline's wife Barbara after he's trying to introduce um, her as Allison and he just goes, Oh yes, I remember Barbara. And so from then on Jack is calling his wife Barbara and when Sam points out her real name is Allison Jack gets defensive and wants to know what's wrong with the with the name like Barbara. So I, I really think this is a very funny film but you got to pay attention to it
2: it's and again it's got that darkness to it because everything going on around the comedy is pretty i don't want to say brutal but like they're in a restaurant and a bomb explodes and they literally just kind of go along their day having dinner you know and, and as people are dying and you know they put up the the like the wall the fake wall like behind the <laughs> like dinner nothing table, to see so here yeah. so nothing to see yeah it's you know and i think working in like a corporate setting like makes this movie a oh, little God, bit more yeah. depressing uh yeah yeah that's one of the things i i felt today is like oh man this paperwork 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 all that stuff
1: well it i th- it's done for comedy in terms of how many forms you got to fill out in the the bureaucracy that occurs, and they do it so well. It it does have that Monty Python-esque dialogue at times where it's very much over the top, and people's reaction sometimes can be over the top. But what they're doing and what they're saying, it makes total sense. And in fact, I can sit there and go – Oh yeah, I've been in that conversation before. Heck, I think I was just in that conversation last week. Last week, yes. And, and last week, in my head, I'm like, "Is this really happening?" And now I'm watching it on screen and laughing and going, "Yeah, it's absurd." Like when it, if you're having an out of body experience, and I were watching myself two weeks ago having the identical conversation, I probably would be laughing too. But at that minute, I'm, I'm super frustrated because I'm hearing, "Stay in your lane. It's not my job." Uh, what are you, gonna, you know, that whole thing about what are you going to do with the terrorist? Well, I'm, I'm at lunch. <laughs> so, that's my lunch break,
2: yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, I literally feel like sometimes I'm Harry
1: Tuttle getting killed by paperwork. I literally, <laughs> like having it kill me. Um, so, I mean, do you, do you think the comedy still works? I mean, I, I found it I do. super I do. refreshing, even though it's made in 1985. I mean, it, it's still relevant.
2: Yeah, it, and that's, I think that might be one of the things that makes this movie even more scary is all the things that I got right about bureaucracy and even like the signs, you know, like the signs that are going around, like literally my wife and I were in New York a few years ago. You know, you see these signs that says, see something, say something, um, Suspicion you know, all breeds these
1: confidence.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we heard around like when uh, the Patriot Act was being enacted, you know, people were like, well, if you don't have anything to hide, then what do you care? And it's like, well, yes, we're, I understand that, but you're giving your rights away, and like, just because I don't have anything to hide doesn't mean that I think it's okay for people to lose some of their personal freedoms. Yes, I think fighting terrorism is bad, but personal freedom is good.
1: Yeah, the the commentary on the authoritarian state I think is done at its best with some of those great posters that they have in the background, and and you see this pop up all the time. Suspicion breeds confidence. I mean, that that's like a slogan. Another one was don't suspect a friend, report him, (laughs) (laughs) and because it got to the point where as soon as I noticed a couple in the background, I start looking around and you see them all over the place. And there's one at Christmas that's you know Consumers for Christ. That's there's a a lady holding a sign for that. Yeah. So it does a very good job if you're I don't know if, if you're looking at things going outside of the current dialogue and you're looking at the production. If you're looking at the art design and everything else, they really do a fantastic job of creating that oppressive authoritarian state with just these little tidbits of artwork and posters. And you know, I mean, it's a pretty gray film, but it's strikingly gray.
2: Yeah, it's all the concrete build. You know, all the buildings are gray concrete. Even like the ductwork, which you know, the ductwork is all around, kind of like, you know, the information is. They're always feeding the ministry information and those ducks are all around, you know, comically. So Um, I I do want to bring up literally the, the jumping off point of this, of this movie is a bug falls in to a, a typewriter and there's a bug in the system that yeah, like literally kicks off what is going on in this movie. And, you know, and we talked about like Sam's like lack of empathy when he finds out that that, that Buttle was killed instead of Tuttle. He's not really care about the guy being killed. He cares about like getting her the check so he can feel okay about the paperwork. Like it's, it's not about the loss of life. It's about kind of what his job entails. If that's what's going to be. And again, I, I will tell you, so <clears throat> let me tell you what my, my paper was about 18 years ago. Cause I oh, was trying yeah, to remember. Yeah. Okay. So, I had a theory that Jill in this movie died in the lingerie bombing, okay everything after that was um Sam's imagination of what it would be like for them to get together and because you know he sees her at the end as the woman in his dreams, and then they you know she's like. I saw so I'm a necrophiliac or uh, you know, you're dead. And she's like, what do you feel about necrophilia? And um, so there, there, there's a lot of things that like sh- a, I, there's, you can make an argument that she was never existed, or you can make an argument that she died at that moment. Um, because literally up until that point, Sam has no empathy. Yeah. And After that, you can, sh- you can see that there is a strikingly different person that Sam has become, he's become a much more empathetic. Uh, he's much more aware of what's going on around him. Um, I think there's like this really big change after Jill may or may not have died. It, it, it just, there is, there is to me when I watch it and still now I, I see it. I'm like, Oh yeah, I feel like I might've been onto something now. It's not like my original theory or anything like that. It's just, it, it it can be there. And she is someone that obviously I get, I don't know. Do you even think that Jill is a character in this movie? Does does the Jill character exist in this movie?
1: I do. Yes. Okay. I think so. The problem that I, I do understand why the studio would look at this and say, I think your typical audience is going to struggle with this a little bit. Is anytime you introduce dream sequences to this magnitude, so you you get pure Gilliam on display here. Anytime a dream sequence comes up, and there are moments that it makes sense for a transition to where when he falls asleep, he goes into a dream sequence. There are other times when they cut to the dream sequence and you're not exactly sure what's going on, but then they transition to him being asleep and he wakes up. And I think there's a dream sequence where he's daydreaming and he's thinking yes. about what's going on. He's totally awake while he's you know in a subway or, or a subway car but it's it's not really a subway car it's it's like a transit yeah. box or something,
2: yeah, it's like a box yeah. yeah
1: so i I'm sure the narrative gets i i don't know very confusing because a lot of times with this type of movie, it's all about what's real, what's not, and the merging of it and and that's what Gilliam's going for, obviously. So I don't think there's a fault in saying, okay, at what point does he sort of trip the light Fandango and next thing you know, he's in La La Land. I think you can make a case that it happens a couple of different points within this film. The most literal piece is probably when they start the interrogation of him at the end and you get the last 20 minutes. I think that's the obvious choice to say, okay, when they start these tactics, the last 20 minutes – that's that's him losing himself into what we would madness. call insanity or madness, yeah. but for him, it's his way to escape the reality. So that fits within Terry Gilliam's. Yeah, because
2: I mean, and I guess when you when you end your film on someone being insane in a chair, you know, and you kind of bring up the question like, was all of it a dream? Was yeah. was any of this movie real? And I can see as an audience, not liking the fact that you invested all this time into a movie and it could be in some guy's head. It's like that snow globe sort of deal where, you know, it's, it's all in a snow globe or whatever. It doesn't. So whether or not Jill dies or Jill's alive, or this is all in his head, I don't think any of that detracts any of the movie. Like, no, I, yeah, I I don't, I don't understand what people's fault with that is. I I don't think it doesn't change the meaning of the movie. It doesn't change the visuals of the movie. I, I, the impact of this movie doesn't rely on whether or not Sam is making all this up in his head.
1: <laughs> I, I agree. I I think this is always going to be a tough watch for a traditional viewer because a lot of times you, you'll you go to a film and it's escapism. You want to see a narrative. You want to live out that fantasy. And you want to understand that all of the rules of that movie and everything that's happening, it's one linear piece of logic. It's, it's a very straight line. Now, physics may not apply in that world. I mean, look at the Fast and Furious movies. Physics just don't matter at all. And you know what? I'll go along with that ride as long as whatever rules you set up, you follow. I mean, I'm I'm I love Star Wars. Now, they have problems sometimes in making up the rules as they go, but at its core you go space wizards doing space wizard stuff. Cool, I'm along for the ride and and I buy into it. Brazil I think is a tough watch because it's not as much about the narrative as it is the commentary on the bureaucracy, the commentary on a 30 year old man really trying to deal with work, with life. You know, at the end He's of the zealous mother. Is, yeah. I mean the nepotism <laughs> that goes on that you know he is he is taking part in but at the end of the day, it, it's a guy who decides that he's going to fall in love and him trying to deal with that, but also play the game. So when, when you talk about those dream sequences, you get a fly, you get, you know, Sam flying in the sky like Icarus and you get this gorgeous you know image, but that is then turned into a large samurai that he has to fight, which, which again is epic. It's sprawling. It's it's fantastic to watch, but it represents the government and bureaucracy that he's going up against. Then you which get the same right turns out to be him. Yeah. Then you get these forces of nature, which are these great creatures with baby faces that are taking his, his, his vision of Jill away. Um, you get these visions of that family that start popping up that look like these ghost creatures. And again, it's, it reminds me of something from a Christmas Carol. And then that entire final dream sequence, which you you get these segments where, uh, his mother's friend, who's going through all of this beauty surgery through acid, she ends up just being like a, you know, meat and bones. And he tips over the coffin, and it's one of the most grotesque things in the film.
2: Yeah, it's like she turns into like that jelly when it tips over, yeah. and
1: yeah. So it's it's a hard film to digest, but I think you have to go into this looking at it as a piece of art and say, what is it that you're supposed to feel at the end of it? I think that's the biggest thing. Um, and I know I know you work in a similar environment that I do. And and like I said, it seemed like in my 20s, when I watched Brazil, I was so fascinated with the dream sequences, with the art of storytelling, <laughs> with everything that was going on in this film and really taking apart the cinematography and the performances uh, and the dialogue. I mean, I, I still think the dialogue is super sharp and witty and I laugh all the time. But now, 20-plus years with the same company and the same job and moving through those machinations, I mean, working in the government and corporations in general, this film tackles nepotism in the workplace. Um, Sam is always bailing his boss out of trouble and the incompetence of senior management, that's on display. <laughs> and that the real work is done by those behind the scenes. I mean, you see that all the time. yeah. Um, yeah. Nothing can be done without the right form or right – form of permission. Um, people watching films at work when the boss isn't looking, which I, I thought was kind of funny for 1985.
2: I, I also like that the greatest invention in this film is the magnifying glass.
1: Yeah. Like, on the small screen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the whole sequence of Sam having to share a desk with the guy next door and they're fighting for desk space because the, it's one desk, but there's a wall split between two wall- it. Yeah. Yeah, two so opposites, the, yeah. the desk slides back and forth. So, well, um, you know, that's
2: like cubicle culture yeah. now. You,
1: you get this whole, and that whole sequence that I woke up to, and I, I felt like I was right back in the office when Sam is staring at this whole empty building. Because we're at, at our office, we're not fully all back in to the workplace. We've, we've still got the hybrid going or sort of the choice to work from home. So when I go into the office, I feel like that there's this big empty floor. So when I woke, woke up during that sequence, I, I felt like I was back in downtown <laughs> Baltimore. And you get this group of manic people walking around in the background and the boss walking with the group, shouting orders, making quick decisions with no context. And then Sam gets swept up in the chaos and then he's dropped off. When when you're waking up from a, a nice afternoon nap into that, I felt like I w- had to go you write like, a, Were you like panicking all of a sudden? I was. I, I, I yeah. thought I had to go check my email because I needed to respond to a, a, a memo or something. Um, and, and those whole taglines, tag like an empty desk is an efficient desk, I'm, I've heard that in my work life. <laughs> um, and and the whole layers of management and bureaucracy, and nobody willing to take responsibility for mistakes, um, and always pointing out why it's their fault, and all these departments like central services, central computer, Ministry of Information, which is broken down into information retrieval and information dispersal, and you got to stay in your lane in the department of records it, that part of the film kills my soul man
2: <laughs> yeah and also like you ever go to work like and ever asked to use someone else's computer like oh when yeah Sam to give, like i i would never ask to use anyone else's computer but like if you did someone would freak out like Absolutely. that guy does yeah. in this movie it's uh, that's that's one of the things when this movie is like they get so much right and and so much of it has gotten worse. And and yeah. this movie was spot on about corporate, just pretty much Yeah, corporate, corporate culture. culture. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It
1: it was not Orwellian. It wasn't something that was happening in the future. I mean, Gilliam was spot on in terms of, hey, this is this is what a corporate work life is like, and here's what the government's like. And and man, he pegs it just one for one. He just happens to set it in a metropolis-looking, 40s film noir-looking futuristic. But but it's not. I mean, it, I I live that <laughs> right now. Do You wear a gray suit every day. <laughs> no, I you know. But I I can tell you, 23 years ago when I started with the company, I was wearing a suit and tie. Yeah. yeah. So it it wasn't far off. But yeah, I mean. I don't know. It's, it's just funny in your, in your movie watching ability, it, Brazil's just interesting because, and this is why there are some films I love to go back and watch like every so often because you know, some movies don't affect you until you have a kid. Some movies don't affect you until you have a mortgage. Um, you know what, this movie I think is really going to scare the crap out of me when I'm in my sixties. Cause I'm, I'm going to watch it again at some point. And it seems like this, the longer you go in life, And the closer you get to the finish line and you have to go back and look at it, you know, (laughs) I hope I didn't spend my days filling out forms in that bureaucracy. And I had more good days of falling in love and taking chances on that. And, you know, fighting samurais, yeah. Fighting samurais, you know, rattling against the status quo, being a little bit more punk. Um, but yeah, that, this this viewing kind of affected me that way. I was I was I was bummed out for a while after watching it.
2: Yeah, I no, I agree. Like, yeah, and and, and I think my war, war culture is a little bit more liberal than your yours. You know, banking and things like that is very like conservative, like not conservative as in like politically, but you know. Oh no, tattoo. there's
1: there's politics in the workplace too. Yes. That you got yes, exactly. Yeah.
2: But you know, like things like tattoos and hair color and yeah. everyone needs to be a little bit more uniform and, and even things like that. So it might not be, we're all wearing gray suits, but we're all not expressing ourselves as individuals as much
1: as we probably would like. Yeah. And and there's two concepts that really struck with me this time around that at, at the end of the day, I think are a pretty interesting commentary on society in general, not just the corporate culture but but this whole concept of you have to pay for your own interrogation. So the state bills you and your family. And and again, when you when you're looking at this you're like, "Oh my god, are you serious?" And it's played for comedy in some parts and in other parts it's it's pretty dramatic, especially when he's he's going to the family to to hand over a refund check. But there's this whole underlying theme that the longer you hold out in interrogation, the more it's going to cost you because the state's going to bill you. But don't worry because they offer low competitive rates if you need to borrow the money but you don't want to hold out too long because it could ruin your credit rating. So even if you're found innocent after the interrogation, you'll end up penniless because the government will take you for all of your money because they just needed to ask you questions to prove that you were innocent. And I feel like that's how the world works today. The, the minute an accusation comes your way and it, and it, it's not just the government could be the internet could be anything else. Yeah. At the end of the day, you're going to waste all of your not just money, but think about all the time and energy and resource to battle that type of interrogation just to prove that you aren't that person that somebody's painting you. And that, I, hey,
2: I, I almost went and worked for the IRS.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: So I know all about like, you know, auditing and like have people having to basically prove their innocence.
1: It's crazy, but I mean, it's happening. It's, be it in the news or social media or something of that. I mean, at the end of the day, you just have to have the right circumstance and set of accusations and everything else. And you're going down this path that, you know, maybe it's deserved, maybe it's not, but at the end of the day, there goes all your time and energy for it. So it's those type of things that, again, I think it does a very good job of shining a light and saying, Hey, we, we've got to take a step back and look at this because it, it has nothing to do with the political ramifications if you're a democracy versus authoritarian state or something of that nature, but you could have a society set up in such a way that you're paying for your own interrogation.
2: Yeah. Uh, another thing that kind of affected me this time was the explosions and the bombings was sort of, so their, their lack of kind of showing any sort of attention to like when people are next to a bomb and it glows off and you know, it's horrific. It's getting to the point now where like mass shootings happen so much now that we're almost sort of, we move on so quickly, like those sort of things in society today should affect us way more, but they happen almost on a daily occurrence. And we're getting to the point where their effect on us is less and less Um, sort of like the bombings in this and you start thinking like, oh, are we going to get to the point where mass shootings just
1: don't even, aren't even a blip on our radar? I, they are. I, I mean, I think they are. It's so cute. I'm with you. The the other thing that affected me was that concept of terrorism. So within the film, and, and let's face it, especially in any type of news or political I don't know circulation or something of that nature terrorism by definition is always going to change to kind of fit um, the scenario that it's being used in right So technically th-
2: the rebels in in Star Wars were
1: terrorists Yeah so it it's all sometimes it's all perception based on who's throwing the label who's receiving etc So what you're talking about kind of affected me the same way maybe a little bit different In this case, it was whoever challenges the status quo. So what Jill does in the film is because Buttle is wrongly arrested, interrogated, ends up dying of heart failure. And she is trying to file a complaint saying, hey, you need to take care of this family more or less. As a result of her filing paperwork, she's now labeled a terrorist. But what is weird in this film is as these bombings are occurring, like you said that restaurant scene they're they're setting up these dividers and oh don't pay attention here they're just pulling the bodies off and you know it's business as usual right but that range of filing a piece of paper to challenge the status quo versus a bomb it's treated with the same magnitude in this film so you've got two different occurrences which are on the extreme right one is a piece of paper versus loss of life but a person who files a complaint is just as bad as somebody who plants a bomb in the public place according to the eyes of the authorities. And they're both treated the same. And I, and to your point, the mass shooting versus somebody going out there and releasing some inappropriate video or saying something on news that's inaccurate. I mean, people are getting riled up at the same level and it shouldn't be the case. I mean, I don't remember which shooting it was and I can't remember the circumstances, but I remember this specific phrase when a child dies in a mass shooting and we don't do anything about it. At that point, you're never going to do anything about it. Yeah, it was it. Sandy Hook. Sandy Hook. Yeah. Yep. So to me, especially when you look at the news and you get all upset about what this politician said and you're, you're going to just go crazy and do everything you can to send that strongly worded Facebook post, and you're treating a mass shooting with the same reaction, dude. I think of as a society we've lost, and I, that that's what this movie's pointing out.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that was what 1985.
1: So. Yeah, and it's it's more prevalent today. I think. I mean, I'm I'm not saying Gilliam again is looking at the crystal ball and saying, "Hey, in 2021, we got a pandemic, etc." I mean, if you go back and look at it, the 70s, the 80s, it's all cyclical. I mean, we go through this, but I feel like Brazil coming out in 1985 has, I don't know, just as much relevance as if it were to be released in 2021.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's funny because a few episodes ago, we talked about Southline Tales yeah. and, and how uh, Richard Kelly, you know, I was saying, obviously, the guy was just using his eyes and ears and seeing what's going on around him. Um, you know, and that might not have been extremely fair to the man because there was some more thought and 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 ideas into that. Um, again, Terry Gilliam's not like a prophet, but he is putting this into into film and 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 making it very poignant and, and coming out with a very strong message. You know, I, I think I, I picked this in this slot because we talked about Southland Tales a few episodes ago and I think this is a good sort of contrast to that film. I I feel like this is not subtle in any sort of way. Oh, like,
1: absolutely not. It's very There's it,
2: no subtlety in this movie. It's either. very farcical. Um,
1: it's it's very out there. The performances over the top. Well, we can we can talk about those. Just like Southland Tales. Um and and again, Southland Tales works for me. I know it doesn't work for you. I, now, Brazil, I will champion a thousand times is a better quality film than southland tales <coughs> yeah but it southland tales still works for what it was talking about i think brazil just everything in brazil is so spot on in my opinion
2: yeah and, and i think one of the reasons why i like brazil way better is it's a little bit more focused um than the southland tales is trying to tackle so many subjects yes brazil's a little smaller in scope
1: which means that you can kind of do you think smaller in scope or do you think so like
2: thematically
1: consistently it has the same thing going through it yes yes
2: we're not not going you know time travel and in resource management and all these things like you could argue that they're kind of in 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 brazil but it's not like in your face so again i, I just like the the focus that brazil has um because again the runtime is about the say you know they're yeah. very similar films um well Sa- south Sa- I, Sa-
1: Sa- I think you're right southland tales it has is a bit more chaotic which it's a shotgun approach <laughs> it is and and for some things i think it works for other things it doesn't I agree with you 100%. I I think this is just as big or tackling just as big of things as Southland Tales does, but it's more consistent in its theme. And I I think the narrative, regardless of what, you know, universal thought, I I think the narrative is easier to follow in this one than Southland Tales by a mile. Yes, yes. Which makes it more digestible. But, you know, it it could also be that Brazil speaks to me a little bit more because I'm not saying I live in the world that Sam lives in, but I'm also saying I live in the world that Sam lives in.
2: You live like right next door to where Sam lives. Yeah,
1: we're we're sharing the same condo, I guess. Yeah. Um But yeah, and you're sharing the same desk. That I do feel. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, before we talk about, I guess the performances, we, we can talk about the production. I, I visually, it's a feast, man. Oh, I,
2: it's one of the most striking. Uh, I hate to be like hyperbolic and stuff like that, but there's not many films that look better than this. Um, And I'm a huge, do you remember the game Bioshock? Yeah. Yeah. So you're into the city under Mm -hmm. the sea rapture, like very, I'm getting like, obviously Brazil was very influential on sort of that kind of art deco, but very like (sighs) with
1: corporate it's well, I think of it as like a dystopian version of the forties, with a little bit of cyberpunk and um I don't know art deco but with emphasis on corporate grays.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Concrete, lots of concrete yes. in this movie.
1: Yeah, I mean, very little sunlight. You get you get your sunlight through the dream sequences, but even there's a point in the dream sequences where the buildings come out from the from the ground and it kind of covers the area in darkness.
2: Yeah, there's there's a part where Jill and Sam are outside, and it's like the one time you get to see natural light, uh, but it's not like overly bright or anything like that. But to to your point, this movie is visually, it, again, when you have something that looks like this and it's practical and it's unique and it's, I don't I don't know other words to use, but it, it does gonna it does stand the test of time. So when we watch this again in twenty years for episode. 1500 or whatever um you know i think be the like, math oh. works out on that but <laughs> yeah whatever <laughs> okay. uh we'll we'll be like wow remember how striking that was in 2041 way back in 1985 they got it it was awesome
1: well so did you watch the blu-ray i did okay so i watched the old criterion dvd now the the Criterion DVD is non-anamorphic, so you get the black bars on the top and bottom, but you get you get that full aspect ratio that it was shot in. I tried to watch The Love Conquers All, and I was doing okay with it, but the problem is it's formatted for television, so you get the four three ratio. And knowing how many times it's I've the seen the film, cut. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it is, and it doesn't work for this film. I mean, I, I was okay with it, but. I I made the mistake of going, well, I want to watch the love conquers all version first before my first nap version. Um, and, and I got through half of it and I'm like, man, I just, I want to go watch the full film. I've seen the, the long love conquers all version a couple of times all the way through. I, I hate that version so much. I do it, man. I'll say this. If you want to see what bad choices and editing and framing of a scene can do to a film. That's why I'm, I'm, I just love criterion for putting that edition out because you can actually kind of go, Hey, here's, here's a great example of a non artist. So, you know, Sid Sheinberg getting in and, and trying to do something with his editors, et cetera. And it just doesn't work Yeah, at all. I, I do want to talk about the performances a little bit. Jonathan price is at the center of everything. I, I think he's pretty amazing in this. But the, the key is you have to buy into his character and sympathize with him in order for the ending to have an emotional punch. And since he and I are sharing a desk at a condo together, obviously yeah. it did for me. But I, I have a question for you because this, this is the thing that I think about every time I see this film. Is, is Sam a victim of the system or a victim of his sort of human nature? You might even call it selfish human nature because you made the comment he changes – towards the last part of the film. But I think he, he latches on to something that he wants mm-hmm. versus yes. his mom handing him and, and everybody else telling him what he wants to do. He latches on to, okay, I need to find this dream girl and he wants to fall in love. And so I, I always have this question, like, is Sam a victim of the system or is he a victim of his selfish human nature and falling in love? And at the end of the day it's just he can't play the game effectively in either scenario.
2: Yeah, I mean I can never def- like fault the guy for wanting to fall in love, especially in this world where it seems like everything is so complicated, maybe finding love won't require so much paperwork, you know, so, things like that, like getting like a reprieve from this bureaucratic world. I can't fault the guy for chasing after his dream girl now i don't think he's as innocent in this game as he wants to lead on obviously oh absolutely not yeah he does use his mother because he's using her to get what he wants selfishly so yeah there he's got you know his feet in both pools of water whatever that's saying is (laughs) you know he's he's dipping his toe in the the selfish water for sure
1: yeah, I just I almost feel like this movie is basically saying if if you're gonna play the game effectively, you got to check emotions at the door. You've got to sort of I don't know put your your own dreams, everything else, deep down. And again, probably a, a depressing aspect of this film is Sam is not a character that you get behind and, and champion and kind of go, oh, I, I want to see this guy succeed a hundred percent. You you feel for him, but you see him making choices. And at the end of the day, I, I feel like this film is basically saying, hey, look, he would have been fine if he didn't just chase his own dreams or fall in love. Like it's it that's like one of the messages of this, which again plays into this whole um <laughs> watching the corporate world or watching the bureaucracy of the world or, or watching this authoritarian world world just it it's got to keep you in check and part of keeping you in check is don't chase after what you want we'll tell you what you want
2: <laughs> yeah don't chase after your dreams well in one of the most kind of striking moments in this film is he pulls jill from the rubble, and checks and see if she's okay. And then just starts berating her and yeah. saying it's her fault. Cause he yep. thinks she was the one that did the bomb. Like he meets his dream girl. She goes through this dramatic experience may or may not die. He lifts her up from the rubble and immediately puts the blame on her. You know, like again, we talk talking about this, you know, putting the blame on somebody else, you know, and, and turns out, you know, it was just a Christmas present. Before we go on to any other performances, I'm going to ask you a very important question. Okay. This is a Christmas movie.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Dude. I, um, hey, look, if, if people are going to put Die Hard as a Christmas film, this is a Christmas film. I, okay. I, I Actually, I do. I think it – man, that's a tough question. That's probably <laughs> the hardest question you could ask because I, I do think it borrows heavily from er, – borrows elements from Charles Dickens.
2: Yep. So – a lot of times people will criticize die hard, you know, because it's Christmas Eve. It's a Christmas party, blah, blah, blah. This one has Santa. Yeah. It doesn't have Christmas music, but it has presents.
1: Well, and they're reading a Christmas. Yes. Uh, Carol at the beginning when the, yeah. when so, the state comes in and takes the father away. Yeah. So no, that's, I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. I, um, what'd you think about Michael Palin? I, he, you know, as much as the system and everything else is sort of the villain, Or the antagonist of the film. I think Michael Palin, who who plays Sam's friend, Jack ends up really kind of, I I don't know. I, I feel like he's what Sam should be for the most part in terms of compliance with the world. Like he's, he's kind of what the system or the game wants you to be, but man, I gotta tell you, I, I thought he was a highlight. He's, he's a likable evil.
2: Yeah, there's that scene where he walks into his office and his kids are there, and he obviously just tortured someone because he's
1: got blood all over him. Oh, and he's giving himself that massage or whatever. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And you've, you're wondering, like, did he do that in front of his kids or what's going <laughs> on with that? And, it, you know, it's moments like that where you're, there's this ambu- ambiguity about what is going on behind closed doors and whether or not, you know, he's you know, torturing people in front of his kids and things like that. So, you know, again, very dark sort of themes going on, but this movie, like it just leaves it at that. Like it doesn't, there's no real ever callback to that or anything like that. It just moves on.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Um, Michael Palin, I I love, we already talked about, I love the sequence where his boss gets his uh, wife's name incorrect. So he just starts calling her whatever the boss calls her. And then the kid that is playing in the office, he says her name and she's like, no, I'm the other one. he's like, oh, okay. And then Sam asks, is that one of the triplets? And he's like, I I guess, I think so. (laughs) I mean, he just, he doesn't, oh, how do I say it? It feels like the family is just something that he has to do because it makes him look good from a corporate executive government type standpoint. Which there
2: are people who... They, they treat it just like that. Yeah. And you know, they have owned, the wife, yeah. two and a half kids, and the dog because that's what they're supposed to have.
1: Yeah. And the first time you even meet Michael Palin, he's he's really talking to Sam about, hey, you got to move over to this department because this is where you're going to get promotions. This is where you're going to be noticed, etc. And Sam's obviously not involved. In it. He's excited about the fact that he's just in his own little world he's he's not being noticed he's he's just another number um, but i i think jonathan price and michael palin if you're talking about you know the antagonist protagonist and and everything of that those two performances stand out more than anything um, de niro's okay but man he's not
2: in the film enough to really make that much of an impact
1: yeah i mean all the performances are great but i think those are the two that stick out in my head more than anything
2: yeah i i would say that Kim Geist or Greist. I don't know if I feel like she's great in this movie.
1: Yeah. I mean, to be quite honest, she's one of those. When I go through the cast of credits, she is the ultimate dream girl, but I, I always just kind of forget about her from a performance or actress standpoint, because I remember this film for Jonathan price. I remember it for De Niro I remember it for Catherine Hellman. I mean Catherine Hellman leaves more of a lasting impression. I think has less scream time than Jill does. Um
2: that scene where they're doing her stretching her face, like that is one of the most that will be imprinted on my brain until the day I die.
1: Yeah, it's one it's one of the most iconic images of this film because you know, this thing has so much different commentary. You know, the more I think about it. It does have a little bit of a shotgun approach like Southland Tales, because if you think about what it's saying about cosmetic surgery and beauty and, you know, even the exchange between the two doctors who one uses a knife and the other one uses acid treatment. Um, So there's there's a lot more going on outside of the bureaucracy uh, that it's really hammering home. Now, I, I think it's more consistent than Southland Tales, but. You know at the end of the day i think somebody can make a case and say hey this is still trying to pack as much as southland tales did and, yeah. and i could get behind that but i i think this one just does it better better yeah, yeah. i think it might just be come down to the execution <laughs> no it's hey look kelly is no Gilliam. i mean that's i love donnie darko don't get me wrong but spoiler alert yeah um I don't know what else. I mean, I love the film noir vibe. Uh, you know, yes, even, yes. even the narrative or the story has that classic film noir, it, you know, detective chasing after a girl sort of thing. Um, it obviously taps into the look of it. I, I love everything visually about this film, even though when you, when you kind of take a step back and you go, man, it's it, I don't know. It it feels like it's two steps away from just being a black and white film.
2: Yeah, I, wonder if it would be better if it was black and white to be honest with you
1: i don't i don't know if it would i'll say this the dream sequences especially with the uh, flying in the clouds etc i i love how that looks
2: yeah visually those are striking so yeah, yes
1: even on dvd and and not blu-ray it looks gorgeous which should tell you something about again what's being shown in in the cinematography and everything else
2: yeah those are done with miniatures and stuff like that that stuff's really impressive it's it's really cool. Oh yeah. Um, every, every
1: time Tuttle like zip lines away, you know, it's a miniature, but it, it yeah. looks so good. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what else have we touched on everything? I think so. I, you know, I, I feel this is a hard one to I, honestly, after I watched it, I'm like, what, what are we going to talk about outside of, well, let me back up. My impression was, what am I going to talk about outside of, man, I just wanted to crawl into a bottle of Jameson after this and maybe reevaluate my life and go, well, yeah. I should be teaching kids somewhere in some, I don't know, making a difference in the world. Making an
2: impact. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh,
1: But, oh, that that was a gut punch. I don't know.
2: Yeah. Giving in to the corporate overlord.
1: I did. Uh, I sold my soul, really, man. Really is, uh, punches you right in the gut. It does. I mean, there's more to us than the jobs, etc. But man, if you ever want a wake up call to kind of go make sure that you as a human being, I mean, everything at the end of the day is time and energy. I mean, it's Kung Fu, right? That's, that's what Kung Fu means time and energy. So you, it's, it's not, it's not infinite. It's finite. You only have so much. So if you ever want to watch a movie to help you remind you of what's important and job is important, but at the end of the day, it's all the human connections and everything else outside of it. Uh, this does a great job of that, but you know, out of out of Gillian's three between Time Bandits, this, and Munchausen, this has the the biggest impact for me. But I think it's also because I'm I'm the person this film, like Gillian was going for. It's how do you, how do you as a middle aged man escape reality? Yeah. So yeah. So do we ask the question?
2: Yeah, ask me the question. Okay,
1: this was your pick. I, I,
2: we we got to talk about next week a lot.
1: Okay, some important. All right. Well, this the question is we we just got done talking about um I, I don't know, a very influential film from the 80s. Uh five's Brazil. Brad, this was your pick for episode 51. So, is Brazil a bomb?
2: Brazil is not a bomb. Um, I know when I was giving my initial impressions, I kind of said this time I felt the runtime. I mean, it is a long movie. It is a long movie about paperwork and the bureaucracy of corporate world. So the film is going to make you kind of feel that. um, And that's deliberate. Um, But I, I really think the climax of this film is impressive and is worth getting to. And along the way, there's great moments and and it definitely isn't something that I like, Oh gosh, it's just drags. But I do feel the runtime when I watch this is kind of my only criticism um, but I really enjoy this film. Again, science fiction, post-apocalyptic. You know, there was some sort of apocalyptic event that happened because when they're driving next to the Fury Road, you're like, "Wow, this went it's bad." It's all barren, yeah. <laughs> um, um, so, I will say it's not a bomb. I really enjoy this movie. Um, I, I I probably won't wait 18 years to watch it again. I I kind of am itching to to watch it. Tonight again because of our conversation, like it's one of those movies where, after you talk to someone about it, like I have this itch to go back and look for things that you talked about and be like, oh, okay, I see that, I see that. So, um, I'm I'm ready to kind of dive back into it. Is as weird as that sounds. So,
1: well, can I ask you? You you said that it was a little bit of a slog to get through at a two hour and twenty two minute runtime if you were coming into this film for the first time, had never seen it, you had not been exposed to the visuals, the storytelling element, et cetera. Do you still think it would be a little bit of a chore to get through? Or do you think for those two hours and 22 minutes, you would just kind of be swept away into that world and kind of going along the ride with, with Jonathan price character, Sam, would, would it, would it be more fascinating and more exciting if it were your first time view?
2: I think so. I think your first time viewing will be the one that feels the most trippy. I guess is what you know. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll feel like the adventure that, not adventure. This thing is
1: not really an adventure. It's a. Oh, it's an adventure, but it's not the kind of adventure. Yeah, it's not know? the so, typical adventure. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, I'm I'm with you. This film is not a bomb. In fact, I I think this film's important. Gilliam's vision is simply amazing. However, I, I would be the first to say this movie isn't for everybody. I, I think it's one of the most important films of the 80s, in my opinion, if not the last 50 years. I mean, I, I, I think it's up there, um, but I would be really careful on who I'd recommend to see it. It's, it's two hours and 22 minutes of comedy genius with a very nihilistic view of the world. Um, it, it's basically saying in the end, the only escape from insanity of the world is to go insane yourself and, you know...
2: Oh God.
1: Yeah. I mean <laughs> that that's what happens. And I got to tell you, if, if you're kind of feeling down, don't and put don't. this, don't put this thing in. <laughs> I, I think you've got,
2: if you're feeling bad, watch dumb and dumber. Don't
1: watch Brazil. <laughs> yeah. Go watch Kung Fu Panda or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Um, and, and here's the other thing. I, I love the behind the scenes story of the film as much as the movie itself, because I think it's, it's the story that introduced me to the relationship of the artist in the studio. Um, and the film is a representation of a director's fight against a studio executive. So, as you're watching this narrative, what you got to keep in mind is that Gilliam in real life goes from the victim of Sam to the terrorist in the background with his personal attacks on national TV and clandestine screenings. I mean, Gilliam lived this film just against the studio and he he violated the contract of showing the film in the US. And, um, you know, Universal came back and said, well, let's make 12 Monkeys. So it it didn't exactly help his career, but at the same time, you know, you can say as an artist, he, he went against the system and won.
2: Yeah.
1: I I think it's interesting, especially the last couple of weeks. You, you see aspects of this film, what happened behind the scenes with Gilliam in the studio. I I think you see it playing out today with movies like fast and furious nine or F nine because, uh, what was it? John Cena got in trouble for calling Taiwan a country. And has to <laughs> has to go and in Chinese apologize to the people of China. And I I really, I don't know. It's it's a interesting reminder that actors and filmmakers have to deal with studios and now governments when they release their film. And this movie is just, you know, it's a public reminder of what goes on in the merge of art and commerce. And I I just find that fascinating stuff. So if you if you really want to do a deep dive and commit to this thing and you haven't bought the Criterion edition, uh, go, go and buy that. I, I, it's a fantastic movie, but I, I think the supplements that tell the story of what happened behind the scenes is just as fascinating.
2: And I think it's time that we appreciate Terry Gilliam more as a director.
1: Yes, I, I know. Not just
2: a guy from Monty Python.
1: Yeah, I, I know he caught a and little... And I'm guilty of that. I'm yeah, sorry. Go no, on. he caught a little flack for Tideland because I, I think he had some controversial story elements in that. But at the end of the day, he's he's one of the most visionary filmmakers out there.
2: Yeah, I mean, 12 Monkeys and Brazil are two of the most important science fiction films the last
1: 50 years. Oh, I agree. And I, I think Brazil... Well, the thing about Brazil and 12 Monkeys is every year, I think... They age a little bit better for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean 12
2: oh, monkeys for sure now, sadly. <laughs>
1: yeah, it is. But I I'll tell you what. I, I'm always amazed at a film because you know, Blu-ray 4K. I'm in love with that. I I watched Doctor Strange Love in 4K. It was a beautiful black and white film. But I'm telling you to go back and watch a non anamorphic print of Brazil on DVD, uh, it, it still looked gorgeous. I mean, that that's how good looking the film is. All right. That's Brazil, man brazil well next week's kind of a big deal isn't it
2: it is it's our
1: one year anniversary of the podcast we released our first
2: episode 52 weeks next week will be 52 weeks um so we're going to do a little celebration origin story of our podcast um troy and i last i don't know around february march uh we're talking about a film that we um could not believe was not better received. And that
1: film was what, Troy? Uh, it was none other than Ghostbusters 2.
2: Yes, Ghostbusters 2. So we started talking about um, Ghostbusters 2. And I believe I said, man, that movie is not a bomb. And That is correct. We we literally were like, okay, we're starting a podcast called Not a Bomb. <laughs> we're going to talk about start Well, it as stuff. a
1: joke because yes. of that comment. And then yeah. I think the next day you were like, hey, w- let's do it. I'm like, oh, really? I thought you were just joking.
2: And yeah, so, you know, we, we, to be fair, Ghostbusters 2 made money, uh, but critically, it did not do as well. And it is, you know, one of those films that the sequel was way less appreciated than the first one. Um, So we were like, why why is it considered a bomb? Well,
1: Bill Murray, even now is is going out in public and saying that he was tricked into doing it meaning that the script that they showed and everybody was bamboozled so even in today's environment uh with the a ghostbusters movie coming out on the horizon you you have people who participated in that film just kind of crap all over it
2: yeah yeah so you know we we, we thought you know for our one-year show we have to do this the kind of the 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 movie that started this all off um so we will talk about ghostbusters 2 It is going to be impossible for me to talk about Ghostbusters 2 and not talk about Ghostbusters because it is one of the most important films in my life. Um, Until I was about 12 years old, I wanted to be a Ghostbuster when I grew up. Um, Sadly, my parents had to tell me that busting might feel good, but Ghostbusting is not a real job. Oh, it is a real
1: job now. Well,
2: yes, yes, yes. but I, you know. I had to come to the realization that (laughs) I was going to have to give in to the corporate overlords uh, that I just learned about today. But um, yeah, so we're going to talk about Ghostbusters 2. I'm really excited. I can't believe, you know, it's been a year. Um, Our little COVID project has morphed into something that uh, I look forward to every week.
1: Me too, man. And we're also going to have a little fun. So one of the things Brad and I do behind the scenes is we keep a running tally of who liked what film when the guest came on who liked it, but I thought it would be good too. We're we're actually developing some questions, some interesting questions to go back and look at the 51 films that we looked at. Um, And you know what? We may start with some simple ones like out of the 51, what's your favorite film out of those 51? What's your least favorite film? But we'll we'll probably get more original. And if you have any questions that you want to ask us about our little trip over this last year about talking, I mean, if you go back and look at the list of films, I think we've talked about almost every genre. Uh, we've hit so many decades. I mean, from black and white to stuff that was just released, you know, last year. I mean, we were all over the place. But if you have any interesting questions for us about, you know, what... Yeah, you-
2: Night of the Demon is probably our oldest film. Yeah. And Love and Monsters has to be our newest film. So, yeah, we've spanned what, 70 years Yeah.
1: And you know what, if, if you have something that you want to know um, about our take on something in those 51 movies, you know, Brad, how, how do they send that into us? How do they get hold of us?
2: That's not a bomb pot at gmail.com. You can also reach out on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. I did check our Instagram or our, our Twitter right before we started. And we now have over 500 followers for whatever that means. I don't know. Do they They give you anything for 500? I
1: don't know. I don't know. 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 I'm still trying to Uh, figure out how we insta tweet or whatever. So,
2: yeah. And, and, you know, the uh, Big Trouble Little China uh, episode was very good to us. We always do these episodes. They're like, oh, we have a huge increase in in listeners. And then we always follow it with hard uh, live wire or. Brazil,
1: that's how we do it. And and I want to, I just want to send a special thank you to everybody who sent an email or text or contacted about um, Cameron joining last week. Everybody was super kind. And uh, as a result, I think Cameron kind of got the bug. So he, he was asking about what other films are coming up. He's already eyed a few. So we might hear from him. We're definitely hearing from Angel. Um, But yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking forward to bringing some new guests on too. But uh, I, I I still can't believe it. When when we look at the numbers, it it boggles my mind. So a lot of you people are super bored. Apparently, there's a lot (laughs) of super bored people out there. But hey, look, I'm I'm super appreciative, and um, I love the fact that we've made so many new friends, um, and especially other shows that you know, like VHS Files, uh, Podcast, Gentleman's Guide. Uh, Friends with Cinefits. I mean, those are all fantastic podcasts. Night of the Living Podcast. If you haven't listened to any of those, go download them. They're they're super great.
2: Yeah, and they've done nothing but support our show and promote our show. You know, we owe a lot to people like Josh and and the Sammy for kind of helping us get our show out there. Um, you know, we are bad at promoting. I'm not going to lie, we are very bad at promoting our own it's, stuff. It feels like a
1: full full time job when you get yeah, into it. Yeah. And we just don't have time. Um, Oh, I, I do want to say this, Brad, just to, just to kind of tease next week. Somebody knew we had our one year coming up and they sent us a present to my house. So oh. there is a present for you and a present for me. I'm going to send it out tomorrow and you, when you get it, you cannot open it until next week's show. and We're going to open it on air.
2: Oh, open it live. Okay. We're going to well, open it live live to recording. Okay.
1: I, I think I know what yours is. So, uh, I'm excited for you, but yeah, I mean, that's how <laughs> that floored me. Is it going to be a gun rack? No, <laughs> it's not that big. Wayne's world. That's yeah. my favorite joke in any movie. A <laughs> okay. gun rack.
2: I don't even own a gun, let no, alone enough guns. You don't to have to worry about that. You have to do rack. Yeah. yeah.
1: You don't, you don't have to worry about gun rack, but no, I was, I was flattered and super excited. So uh yeah, I mean I, that's how amazing uh the people that we interact with uh on a regular basis as a result of doing the show. So thank you. And I'm I'm excited to to kind of see what they are next week.
2: Yeah, yeah. And again, um if you have any suggestions, we have things planned out to about I think through the end of October, November maybe. But um, Yeah, I, th- you know, I think there's
1: some spots open in October and November. I think September's yes. booked.
2: Yeah, yep. so if you want to give us a suggestion again, that's notabombpod at gmail.com. dot uh, You know, we are going to get to Death to Smoochie. Jesus Christ, we will get there.
1: Stop. <laughs> <laughs> death We may have to move that up because as, yeah, that's I'm come up of a couple. It. No, it's come up a couple of times from different people, and I'm like, oh yeah, it it made me go and watch Throw Mama from the Train a couple of weeks ago. Uh, for you know, because Danny DeVito yeah. directed yeah. that one too. So yeah, we I might have to swap one of my picks for that one because i'm really excited about it now
2: and i brought i bought that movie brigsby bear because we're gonna have to do
1: that later on yeah that was uh that was a recommendation somebody not only recommended that but then gave us the link because it was on sale yeah Yeah. thank you randy yes so (laughs) what else man that's it
2: yeah it's (laughs) what have i done with my life troy Brazil really kind of... No, all
1: good things, man. We got this going for us, right? We're spread- we just do
2: it for the paycheck, man.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we don't get a paycheck. We're just spreading yeah. the love. Um, yeah. Hey, I don't know. You know, I always say this, but I, I truly mean it. I don't know if you're you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, the evening. Thank you for downloading the podcast. And we are so fortunate to have you listening. And I hope just truly hope you're having an awesome day.
2: Yeah. Thanks for listening. And uh, thank you and have a nice day we right